0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So, this last month, I've been talking about impermanence, and more recently, you know, thinking about and reflecting about our practice, our spiritual practice, um, just because it's a more gritty way to to hold the idea of awakening as a kind of composure and a vibrant ease, a vibrant equanimity with change, with uncertainty. And today I want to talk about what is composure, what is balance, what does that enlivened equanimity look like in the face of activation? Because, you know, as a human being... um, that this heart, this mind has been conditioned, as we often reflect on and should reflect on, right? It's been conditioned by culture. It's been conditioned by my genetics, the sort of millions and millions of years of evolutionary conditioning, right? And then it shows up as this kind of mind, this kind of heart. And so the the balance, the freedom has to be in terms of this kind of conditioning that, as you probably have found in your own way, your own life, can get activated. You know, when somebody insults me, or when I read something in the news, or when I have this experience or that experience, all kinds of conditioned programming gets activated. And I'll get angry, I'll get defensive, I'll get closed down, I'll get self-righteous, And, you know, who knows how many different sub-tapes, sub-personality programs we have that, that are just, in a way, waiting to get activated by some external stimuli. And it doesn't, you know, just because part of our conditioning is how we perceive things, so that external stimuli, maybe whatever it is, But because of my habits of perception, I can see a threat, I can see something exciting dangling there, even when it's not exciting or pleasurable, or the threat isn't really a threat. Because it's not just the external stimuli, it's really my perception of the external stimuli. That is what triggers my sub-programs to be defensive, to be angry, to be self-righteous, to close down, to feel, oh poor me, or to feel I'm not good enough, or any of the many programs that we have woven in. I was talking recently to one of our leaders, um, Philip, who's the um, been the one of the main facilitators of our community group, Common Grounds Community Group for activists and people interested in the intersection of Speaking up, uh, leaning in, showing up for injustice to make the world a better place, and their Dharma practice. So this has been this group has been going on for a while, as well as other groups that have been more specifically focused on climate change or immigration rights. Or, and these are just natural formations of common ground community, people with an interest in what does practice look like here? What does practice look like there? And um, one thing that has happened in the past is uh, some people in the community um, have reflected and offered some training on like, well, what does action look like from a Buddhist point of view? Because I'm sure, hopefully, uh, people who are here listening to the talk and have done a little study realize that central to this path of awakening is this very deep and very alive, Interest, commitment to non-harming, to non-violence—it's really central to the how the Buddha understood his own transformation and the path that he sort of set in motion through his teachings. Both this very alive and resonant commitment to non-harming and non-violence, and this very resonant, enlivening commitment to generosity—these are, in a sense, I mean, the different ways to talk about it. But these are in a sense the foundation of the whole path of awakening because it is the uh, vibrant, enlivened and enlivening commitment to non-harming and generosity that provides the necessary stability and actually, maybe surprisingly, joy that we need to uncover the freedom of intimacy and non-grasping. Whereas Ajahn Chah, one of the real inspirations for my own practice, uh, this Thai meditation teacher and um, trainer of some of our senior teachers in the early Buddhist tradition here in the West, Ajahn Chah would talk about, you know, instead of nibbana, he would talk about the reality of non-grasping, discovering here in our hearts and minds a moment Where the heart is intimate, it's here in our life, absent of the grasping, absent of the fixation, right? And so then, who or what we are, we're always nature, right? But it's an unrestricted nature, an activity of our lives that's not restricted by grasping, by fear, by hate and greed. Well, I'm interested in that way of being, that way of living, And as I mentioned in the equanimity guided meditation we did today, you know, we need the exposure to our lives. Sometimes there's too much exposure and we need to skillfully turn away from the exposure, right? Like we need to go to bed or we need to hang out with certain friends but not other friends because we need to lessen the exposure. And sometimes we need to kind of open up Our perception and our life to more because we have too much protection, too much safety, too much privilege. And the the, um, sort of metaphor in the Buddhist tradition are the devas, the angelic or celestial beings that have just a lot of comfort and a lot of beauty and a lot of pleasure. And they can mistakenly think, this is it, because they forget that this is it for a while and then it changes and something else happens, like a rebirth in the sort of Buddhist cosmology in another realm where it isn't so nice, and uh, so we can uh, get complacent when things are too comfortable and we can become really caught in our reactivity when things are too much, too exposed, too much difficulty. So anyway, I was talking with Philip, and one of the things he's interested in is, again, organizing, helping different people in the community come together to organize. Like, well, how do we show up both when we individually, personally are getting activated, but also culturally, you know, the society is getting activated. And how do we show up? How do we contribute our practice imperfect as it might be, to our own well-being and the well-being of our society, especially at times when there's a lot of activation. So that we're not modeling, well, what you do is you run away, right? Because we, we know the, the basic unhelpful patterns of acti- when we're activated. And this isn't specific to you or me, this is just true for human beings, right? When we're activated... We either want to fight, right? So we have that very quick flash of anger, destroy the enemy, destroy the threat, get rid of it by any means until we're safe. So there's the fight response, and there's the flight response, run away, which can include denial and putting our hand in the sand and uh, pretending that it ain't true, you know, that the threat isn't true. Right? So there's fight, there's flight, there's freeze which is like I don't know to fight whether to fight or to deny or turn away, and we're paralyzed. And then uh, somebody recently told me a couple years ago that there's actually a fourth F, right? Fight, flight, freeze, and then the fourth is follow. And I like to expand this. So follow, I think this person meant when they mentioned that to me. Like the tendency like to get ourselves out of the freeze is we're looking for somebody who has a strong opinion and we're aligning with them and we'll follow them because I don't know what the heck to do, so I'll follow. right? So we're susceptible to charismatic leaders or people who are, are arrogantly sure that they're right and they speak and then we follow. And related, I think, to that is just this, could be this dependence on Dualistic thinking good and bad that they're sort of neatly okay it's either good or it's bad you're either right or you're wrong and ambiguity and nuance just sort of goes out the window and we see the world in this black and white way good and bad way um, and that's just a kind of protection from the exposure of life I remember one Zen teacher saying once I I like this quote, I think it was Reb Anderson, um, that um, well-practiced people are vulnerable, experience vulnerability all the time, right? as opposed to ordinary people who haven't done a lot of practice are vulnerable some of the time. And I think it really means like, okay, so if I'm going to be a, a skillful human being, if I'm going to be able to keep showing up, be intimate, Responding in ways that contribute, responding in ways that are healing, not planting seeds for more hate, for more divisiveness, for more um, injustice, right? If I'm going to actually be contributing, then I have to learn how to deal with my own activation. And I have to learn to deal with everybody else's activation. Because of course, my activation, when well my heart, my personality gets activated, my activation activates others. I mean, we really see this in our marriages and our close friendships, right? If our partner is activated, well, there's nothing that activates me more than my partner getting activated. And I'm guessing it goes both ways. When I get activated and I, you know, express one of my fight, flight, freeze or follow, you know, like me, it might be getting cold and cool and, withdrawing or it might be getting defensive right or judgmental or any of these you know uh, not so helpful personality patterns well likely that will be activating for the other people involved and around and around and around it goes and in buddhism we call that samsara the cycles of suffering the almost never-ending cycling of suffering where our response because we care about this life we care about suffering we respond to it but we respond from this place of distortion of not understanding of personalizing things and because of that our response turns out to be the cause for more of that cycling and that's actually what breaks our heart open and really opens us to a path that's how the Buddha described his own opening You know, after the deepening of insight of waking up, it was really seeing how people wanting to be at ease, wanting to be free, do exactly what leads to more dis ease, more unhappiness. Right? It breaks our heart when we see that. And we need to respect that this composure with impermanence is no small thing. Right? These these deep tendencies, these deep habits in our heart to fight, to hide and deny, to f- this flight, run away, to freeze up and to follow and see things in terms of good and bad, this dualistic thinking, these are very deep patterns in our heart. And it affects us in terms of how we feel the body. It affects us in terms of the quality of the mind, like how we perceive and how we view and understand things. And so we need a lot of courage to do this personal work because it's our way of contributing to the work in our wider communities. Uh, Sylvia Borstein, one of the... Leaders at Spirit Rock and longtime teachers there, and just a, a great elder in our Western Insight Meditation um, community. Sylvia has this, I think, a really good translation or restating of what um, a hope, like how to understand hope from a Buddhist perspective, and she says, "A oh, courage is the Buddhist equivalent." hope and often we'll hear hope and fear as two sides of a reaction so not something we want to cultivate but still we we sort of know that there's something about hope that's useful and I really like how Sylvia yeah the part of hope that's really useful for us for us is that fearlessness that courageousness right like the courage to know that not all the chapters have been written, right? We're still writing, we're still setting the future in motion right now. So the courage that it matters how I'm relating right now, how I'm showing up right now, because that's setting in motion, that's planting seeds for the future, it's not over. So in that sense, we're never doomed. And I think it's okay to call that hope, but it's just we have a lot of baggage around the word hope, like, there's a possibility that we can cling to, because the the future literally does not exist. What exists right now is right now, which is things are arising, the heart is relating to them, and our heart is relating to the present moment in a way that plants seeds that will lead to the future, that will condition what unfolds in the future. So what we can say is, right now, something is happening and I'm relating to it. I'm in relationship. My heart, whatever that heart or that mind is, it's knowing and it's in relationship to whatever it is that's arising in the moment. And how I'm relating, how I'm understanding, how I'm perceiving, it matters. Because it's conditioning what's going to unfold from here. And it takes real courage to take responsibility. And what I'd like to especially reflect on today together is that we're taking responsibility for how we're showing up for our activation. And especially, you know, I don't know if it's true for everyone, but for me and for a lot of us, we're feeling, I'm feeling activated. Activated by the news, activated by injustice, Activated by all that remains unfinished. Activated by the enormity of human ignorance. I was reminded of a quote by, I think it was Albert Einstein who said something. This is a rough paraphrase. There are two things that are infinite, uh, infinite, the universe and human ignorance. And then he adds the punchline. I'm not so sure about the universe. <laughs> right. But pretty sure that human ignorance is infinite. Right. It's just It seems boundless. And that's part of this response to activation. When, you know, and there's a whole field of Western psychology about because impermanence and in particular death, but any uncertainty is activating for our human heart. And we're going to want to fight. We're going to want to freeze. We're going to want to follow. We're going to want to run away, flight, right? That's just... Those are the patterns. Some version of those not-so-helpful patterns are going to get activated. And so the question is, how do we take responsibility for ours and everybody's activation? And one of the things we've been learning is like staying in the game, not imagining that we've blown it or it's too late or giving up makes sense. And uh, one of the things Shelley and I have been talking about is just the intelligence, the spiritual intelligence of staying engaged and doing. But not an arrogant kind of doing, like I know what to do. I don't know what to do, but I'm going to do something. And I'm pretty sure, because I've learned over the years, that in doing something with some humility, but still some courage to engage, by doing something, I'll learn something. And so then in the next moment of doing, it will be informed by what I just learned by doing what I did just before. So we're figuring it out as we go by engaging, by speaking up, by asking questions, by listening, by softening, by tuning into what we're feeling and what's moving around us. And that kind of leaning in, it's like a way of ventilating because when we get activated we're we're using the mind and the capacity of our mind to create bubbles like I'm over here, I'm right, or I'm wrong, you're right, you're wrong. But all of that is existing because of our concepts and our thinking and our identification with the concepts and thoughts that we're thinking. And it creates this whole reality, of this dualistic reality of good and bad, right and wrong. And it, it seems on the surface to give us some safety, but it actually is what propels the cycles of suffering. Needing safety in that fixed sense makes us insecure. Relaxing and participating with the uncertainty with humility, really allows us to start to feel more freedom with things being uncertain, with the exposure, with the unknown. And you know, this can be like when things are really difficult, just a willingness to take a walk (laughs) through the neighborhood, or a willingness to take some time to cook some food, and even better to share some of the food we've cooked or to do some cleaning and especially to find a way to contribute to your own well-being and others' well-being. That widening of the circle, like it's so empowering to find a way where we feel like we're contributing to not just our own well-being but the well-being of others. What can I do not with perfect certainty but what can i do where i'm pretty sure i'm not causing harm and that i might very well be contributing to my own well-being and the well-being of others and it, and we're, we let go it doesn't have to be perfect that you know we're not solving the world's problem and then the world is going to be perfect it's just moment by moment finding our way to stay in that engagement in that activity of life Saying yes to the exposure instead of saying yes to the fight, freeze, flight, follow mentality. These sort of defensive maneuvers that, you know, it's just so easy to fall into. You know, there's just so much habit. And you can see how this fits so well with the teachings of compassion and compassion as a kind of fierce, fierce not so much in in the kind of intensity, but fierce in uh, um, a not forgetting, a fierce engagement, a fierce showing up, like we're in it for the long haul. And that's a much better way, you know, a a lot of um, some of our, I'm not sure the right word, but maybe less wise, less mature spiritual thinking, we think of the spiritual path as having an end point where we're in heaven and then we're done. You know, we kind of jump through the right hoops and then we get this reward where we're done as opposed to it might be more useful and I think this is the way it is in the Buddhist tradition. It might be more helpful for us to use our imagination and then even more importantly, use our life to uncover a refuge, a freedom, or well-being that doesn't depend on getting away from exposure or getting away from the messiness, the stickiness, the reality and the enormity of suffering. Because if our salvation, if our freedom depends on there being no suffering and everything being perfect, It's really a setup to feel oppressed by our lack of freedom. Now, how are we going to actually show up for our own suffering, the difficulties, the world, when we're oppressed and consumed by our own suffering? So this awakening path, you know, people, I think, wrongly and just without having really listened and reflected, We'll say that, you know, this path of awakening is a selfish pursuit. Well, it's so easy to say, having not pursued self awakening, right? Because the whole point is if we conceive of our well being and others' well being as distinct, we're in one of those bubbles of fight, flight, freeze, and follow, right? It's like, oh, I've been activated. This is too much. How can I sort of find my little bubble? where I'm okay, and I'm not responsible for everything else. And so each of us, you know, it's going to be different for each of us. Some of us, the real task at hand will be how to modify the exposure because it's way too much. There's illness, there's financial insecurity, there's marginalization, there's oppression, and we'll really need, as best we can, and it won't be perfect, to cultivate safety so that we can really start to work skillfully with the exposure that remains. Other people will be kind of opening some doors and windows and taking some chances and kind of widening our sense of responsibility and generosity and really starting to show up for things where our mind is conditioned to think that ain't my responsibility, that's somebody else's responsibility. And we need to sort of lean in and take on some responsibility because it's enlivening and it's revealing what's in the way of our freedom. We don't want a freedom that depends on privilege, that depends on good fortune, because none of those things are dependable. We just think they're dependable because it hasn't changed yet, but it will change. Right? There is nothing that isn't part of this truth of change. And so that's really why we you know, become a sincere student of anicca, the Buddhist word for change, for impermanence, for the unreliable and ungovernable, uncertain truth of vulnerability. We want to make it front and center so that nothing, of course anything can happen anytime, But anything that would happen wouldn't surprise us because we weren't living, right? We are teasing out the delusion that we think we know what's going to happen. Like the obvious thing is when we're healthy, it doesn't occur to us that that health is fragile, that it can change. Or if we have some financial security, it sometimes won't occur to us that it's fragile. Or if we're in a stable relationship, we don't realize that it won't always be this way. Or we think we're in a harmonious community and that there aren't any serious problems. And then things change and we realize, oh my God, there's a lot of unfinished work in our community around racial injustice, for example, let alone all the other sort of divisions around economic justice and, and sexism and so many things that we have our own Ways of dealing like uh, ways of avoiding the activation and dealing with the activation, we have these sort of ways of keeping things under cover, being ignorant, and like Albert Einstein's funny story, you know, only two things are infinite: the universe and human ignorance, and I'm not so sure about the universe, but this capacity we have to keep missing the way forward. And this is what I really have appreciated, you know, whether we look at the Buddha's emphasis on dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness in anicca, the reality of change, the impersonal nature, or so many ways in Buddhism there's this invitation to come into the reality of the moment, into the stickiness and the messiness, basically opening to what culture and other conditioning forces have taught us to avoid because we we think it's like we're going to risk, we're going to undermine our safety. But there's no safety in disconnecting. There's only safety in this inclusive um, relaxation, softening, opening, understanding. The only real security is this outright integration with reality, meeting life as it actually is. This is a line from Jane Hirschfeld, this Buddhist, Western Buddhist poet. In non-attachment, the river life of emotion continues. Only our relationship to it alters. The response to the passions isn't driven by the small self's benefit but turns instead towards all being, all being's well-being. And there's these teachings that sometimes are attributed to this mythical, this archetypal um, movement of compassion, kuan yin, just uh, this capacity to hear and respond to all the cries in the world. Now that's a really powerful image because immediately it says, oh, well, that's too much. I can't even deal with the discomfort my cat has or I can't even deal with my to-do list. How am I going to learn how to listen and respond to the cries of the world? Well, one, the first step is just to realize that somehow turning away from that Breaks our heart. It sort of makes us uh, vulnerable. It's like the the very root of fear are these choices we make. One of the ways to consider this uh, teaching in um, the Buddhist tradition that I find very useful is these um, the Buddhist teachings on the four distortions. Like the way this is like another way of talking about the fight flight. Freeze and follow, right? Where he talks about how we tend to see permanence in what is impermanent, and we tend to see self in what is without self, and we tend to see pleasure in what is actually unsatisfactory, and we tend to see beauty like good and bad in what is actually neither good nor bad, right? So these distortions, initially of perception, but then, you know, because we're, we have these habits of misperceiving, then that misperception affects how we think about things, how we construct meaning. And when we construct meaning long enough based on misperception, it, it begins to affect our fixed views and our whole personality, our whole character basically then gets defined by these habits of misperception. And we do that around these things like gender and race, you know, these habits of misperception or implicit biases. But we do them in so many ways, like even around sense pleasures, how we perceive, oh, yeah, if I had chocolate, right? And we perceive that idea of having chocolate as like the happiness that will come from that is more permanent than it is, more personal than it is, that it's really truly beautiful, and not having chocolate is truly evil, right? And the satisfaction is actually, somebody is like permanently satisfied, like somebody really gets something, otherwise why would I bother? So all, and then it just becomes deeply entrenched in our heart, just generally about how we relate to sense experience. And that's why we're willing to be mean and willing to be um, to cheat and to be unjust in terms of our relationship to money and power and wealth and possession, because we think somebody's going to get something permanently, something beautiful permanently that will matter in terms of satisfaction. But these are all based on simple mis- habits of misperceiving that we can begin to unpack. And, and I'll just leave us with these four ways because it's actually it's an easy list to remember these ways of misperceiving, right? So just be on the lookout how we tend to see things as being permanent. And then just like with a serene smile and a little bit of humor, really, really is this permanent or is this still in motion? Like uh, just a simple example, depending on your political um, orientation, you might think, well, maybe both, you know, extremes of the right and the so-called left, so-called right and so-called left, you know, um, maybe both sides tend to see things like, oh, we're going to hell, (laughs) you know, and as if that's like a definitive permanent truth. And just just to bring in a little, well, maybe not so, who knows? Who knows? I don't know. Maybe this is the beginning of what I would consider to be, you know, real positive change. Who knows? So to be on the lookout for when the mind has excluded the reality of change and see a scene in terms of something being permanent. Could be with a mood, like we're feeling depressed or really unhappy. And then we'll just see that habit of like, oh, this is who I am. And that sense that the unhappiness is something really permanent, really true about me in a permanent way. And then just to bring in like, oh, who knows? Actually, it's true. There is this affect, this emotional affect right now, but it's probably even now changing. I may not be able to perceive the change, but it may not be as fixed as I imagine. So this habit of seeing permanence in what is actually impermanent and then the next habit you can begin to train with is the habit of imagining that something some experience will be satisfying in a lasting way now there really is gratification to our experiences you know when we get something we want there is something we get something juicy we get But that satisfaction isn't what we imagine. We imagine that the satisfaction will be with me, something I own for a long time. So it's really incumbent to track actual satisfaction for how long it's there. So we have a more honest relationship with what we call satisfaction. It's not a lasting satisfaction. And so when we think, oh, when I get that new car or when... The United States of America fixes this problem, then paradise, right? But oh no, it will just be the fixing of that problem. There will be some juiciness, some satisfaction, and then it will be on to the next thing because it seems like there's always a next thing, right? So we're going to reflect on the mistaken perception of permanence. The mistaken habits of perceiving satisfaction, the mistaken perception of seeing self in what is actually, should be, could be perceived as impersonal nature, just a natural process, an impersonal natural process unfolding. Oh, okay, it's just stuff happening, just another thing in the forest, another arising Due to many causes and conditions. So, when we're looking at somebody else, right, and they're acting in a way that's inappropriate, we think, and we say, that's them, they're acting inappropriately. As opposed to, no, there is this natural, impersonal process. I may need to say something, I may need to do something, yeah, but I don't need to imagine that there's a permanent self who is that action. It's just this. That person is this conglomerate of impersonal tendencies and patterns that get activated, just like us, just like me. And then the last one we can begin to reflect on is this tendency of dualistic thinking of good and bad. In that, the sutta it's just talk about seeing beauty in what isn't actually beautiful, but it doesn't mean it's ugly. It just means that there that beauty and ugliness good and bad is a relative thing is a constructed thing and that we don't need to be confused we can still in ordinary language say i like that tv show or i like chocolate you know and people will understand what we mean but you know chocolate is just chocolate and smoothness and whatever that flavor experience is for you it's just what it is and you can call it beautiful but that beauty isn't essential it isn't sort of a fixed absolute truth. It's a relative truth, beauty and ugliness. And we can remember that. And that way it just it, it protects us from so much suffering. So this is a way of loosening the screws and I really recommend, and I'll, I'll revisit it briefly next week, but I really recommend that you just look at these habits of perceiving. Perceiving permanence, Perceiving satisfaction, perceiving self, and perceiving beauty or goodness. And then what that sets in motion. And how it's a defense against being intimate with reality, with the ambiguity and the just the reality of the ephemeral, moving, changing exposure of our lives. And by... Getting in these habits, we start to feel disconnected in a way that is really the root of suffering. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.